Before we begin today's episode, we'd like to thank our corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, for their generous support. Fiduciary Trust International helps families with significant wealth manage that wealth and the complexities that come with it across the generations. Building your legacy is about more than just managing your investments. Fiduciary Trust International helps you look at your wealth holistically today and plan effectively for your future. They will help you structure your wealth so you can enjoy it now and provide maximum benefit to your heirs and the causes you care about. If you're looking for trusts, estate, and advanced tax planning services to help you grow and protect your wealth, check out Fiduciary Trust International at fiduciarytrust.com. It's quiz time. Which famous composer was told by the Milan Conservatory that, quote, he had no special talent for music? Find out on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is made possible via generous funding from its corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, and support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. We are delighted to invite you to the 18th Annual Opera News Awards. This year's honorees, soprano Lisa Davidson, soprano Erin Morley, and tenor George Shirley, will be feted at a black-tie dinner gala on April 16th at the Plaza Hotel. Musical tributes by Stephanie Blythe and Latonia Moore will be performed in honor of the recipients, and this exciting gala will also feature appearances by Lawrence Brownlee, Joshua Hopkins, and Anna Maria Martinez. The Metropolitan Opera Guild acknowledges with great appreciation our sponsor for the 18th Annual Opera News Awards, the Lloyd E. Riddler Lawrence E. Deutsch Foundation. For more information or to purchase your ticket, please visit www.metguild.org awards or call us at 212-769-7009. We can't wait to celebrate with you. If you guessed Giuseppe Verdi, you are correct. Verdi went on to write 30 operas during his long career. His final opera, Falstaff, is based on Shakespeare's Merry Wives of Windsor and Henry IV Part I, and it did not become a huge success until Arturo Toscanini insisted on reviving it at La Scala and later the Metropolitan Opera in the 1890s. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we are joined by voice teacher, stage director, and educator Doreen Hutchings as she discusses the humor, music, and staging challenges within Giuseppe Verdi's Falstaff. Giuseppe Verdi is considered to be one of opera's truly great composers. As a young composer, his first attempt at opera was a failure an opera buffa or comedic opera entitled Un Giorno di Regno, King for a Day. As a result of this creative failure, the young composer decided to focus his attentions on musical tragedy, a vehicle which allowed Verdi to achieve his great reputation and much success throughout his career. 
It did occur to Verdi that opera needed laughter as well as tears. And Shakespeare's bulky buffoon, Sir John Falstaff, who appears in two of Shakespeare's plays, intrigued him. In 1889, librettist, musician, and poet Arrigo Boito, who previously collaborated with Verdi on Simon Bocanegra and more recently Otello, sent a draft of a libretto which met Verdi's approval and requirements. This libretto was a melding of the Shakespeare characters of Falstaff drawn from two of Shakespeare's plays, Henry IV and The Merry Wives of Windsor. In addition, the libretto remained faithful to Shakespeare's text, which was an absolute requirement of Verdi's. In good company with Donizetti's Don Pasquale and Rossini's Barbieri di Siviglia, Verdi's Falstaff is considered to be among the masterpieces of 19th century comic opera. Here are some fascinating tidbits about Falstaff. As I said previously, this was the last opera that Verdi composed. As a stage director, I am always intrigued by Mozart's writing because inherent within the composition and the vocal lines is an indication to a director as to what the action should be. And I really feel like with Falstaff, Verdi has accomplished very much in the same sort of thing in, in this construction. The opera actually ends with a fugue, and Verdi was not the most academically supportive composer, so it, it's very ironic that his final opera should end with an academic compositional genre for which he did not care. He didn't like counterpoint, and it's also a bit of a nod to Bach. Written as an ensemble opera with less indication of the beginning and the ending of the arias and ensembles, as in most of, other, of the other Verdi's works, it's a continuous flow. There isn't a stop and a start. It, um, it's almost like through composed as opposed to just having those indications of sections. And if you look at the score, the beginnings of different ensemble pieces are indicated by tempo markings rather than by aria, duet, trio. Before I get into a brief synopsis of the opera, let's talk a little bit about Sir John Falstaff and the challenges of costuming um, for that character. Um, he is usually portrayed as a man with quite a bit of girth, and depending upon the singer that does the role, um, there's sometimes the issue of lots of latex in order to be able to to show the, the girth or to show the large belly on Falstaff and um, some extra makeup and costuming to maybe give him a bulbous nose and um, uh, a wig where he's, he's losing hair, where he only has like curly fringe around the edges. Um, and it's, it's just stereotypical that he's portrayed that way. So as a director and as a costumer, it's sometimes a little bit of a challenge to create the, the part and to also have all of that extra latex and layering of clothing on the poor baritone that sings the role. 
In scene one of act one of Falstaff, we find a Sir John Falstaff, an old fat knight from Windsor, sitting in the Garter Inn with his partners in crime, or cronies, Bardolfo and Pistola. As they enjoy their beverages, Dr. Caius interrupts the men and accuses Falstaff of breaking into and robbing his house. Falstaff is able to redirect Dr. Caius's anger and accusations, and Dr. Caius soon leaves. Bardolfo and Pistola are scolded by Falstaff for being inept thieves. He soon develops another scheme to acquire money. He will woo two wealthy matrons, Alice Ford and Meg Page, and take advantage of their husband's wealth. Falstaff writes two identical love letters and instructs his partners to deliver them, but they refuse, proclaiming that it is not honorable to do such a thing. Hearing their irony, Falstaff kicks Bardolfo and Pistola out of the inn and finds a page to deliver the letters. This is an excerpt sung by Bryn Terfel, uh, Falstaff doing his monologue from the Houston Grand Opera in 2005. <laughs> Outside of Alice Ford's home, she and her daughter are found. Um, her daughter is Nanetta, and they are exchanging stories with Meg Page and Dame Quickly. It isn't long before Alice and Meg discover that they have been, been sent identical love letters. The four women decide to teach Falstaff a lesson and design a plan to punish him. This excerpt is the women in Act 1, Scene 2, and they are singing in a 6-8 meter. Um, the women involved in this production are um, Alice Ford is Ilva Ligabue, Nanetta is Mirella Freni, Mistress Quickly is Giulietta Simeonato, and Mistress Meg Page is Rosalind Elias. In a DECA recording from 1963 um, with uh, Sir George Schulte.
Bardolfo and Pistola have told Mr. Ford, Alice's husband, of Falstaff's intentions. As Mr. Ford, Bardolfo, Pistola, and Fenton, who is in love with Nanetta, approach the garden, the four women move inside to further discuss their plans. Nanetta stays behind for a while longer to steal a moment and a kiss from Fenton. However, the women have decided that they will set up a secret rendezvous between Alice and Falstaff, while the men decide that Bardolfo and Pistola will introduce Mr. Ford to Falstaff under an assumed name. Now, this is the men's ensemble that then leads into the women and the men singing simultaneously in two different meters. The men in this particular production are Ford, Robert Merrill, Fenton, Alfredo Kraus, Dr. Caius, John Lennigan, Bardolfo, Piero de Palma, and Pistola, Giovanni Foyani. And again, this is a Decca recording, 1963, conducted by Sir George Schulte. Act 2. Back in the Garter Inn, Bardolfo and Pistola, secretly working for Mr. Ford, beg Falstaff for forgiveness. They announce the arrival of Dame Quickly. Here is a wonderful example of Verdi's ability to reflect a character's emotional state or dramatics in the way in which he has composed it. In this excerpt, we hear Stephanie Blythe singing as um, Mistress Quickly and Ambrogio Maestri as Falstaff in a 2013 Metropolitan Opera production. You can hear this, the sarcasm in what she's saying, that she is trying to show him respect. Shit! 
Ecstatic, Falstaff begins to get himself ready for that afternoon's rendezvous. As we heard in Dame Quickly's excerpt, her reverence, artificial reverence for Falstaff, we now hear in the music that introduces uh, Falstaff's delight 
at the reaction from the women and the fact that the, they want to rendezvous with him. You can hear the excitement in the orchestration at the beginning of this excerpt and at the end. And then as Falstaff is singing, you hear him marching towards his rendezvous with such pride because he actually has accomplished what he intended to do at first. In this excerpt, we hear Ruggiero Raimondi as Falstaff, and it's from a 1986 uh, production at the Grand Théâtre de Genève with Jeffrey Tate as conductor. It isn't long after that that Bardolfo and Pistola introduce a disguised Mr. Ford to Falstaff. He tells Falstaff that he has a burning desire for Alice, but Falstaff states that he has already won her over and has arranged a meeting. She has arranged a meeting with him later that day. Mr. Ford becomes furious. He is unaware of his wife's plan and believes her to be cheating on him. Both men leave the inn. Dame quickly arrives in Alice's home and tells Alice, Meg, and Nanetta of Falstaff's reaction. Nanetta seems rather uninterested. She is distracted by the fact that her, she has learned that her father has given her away to Dr. Caius for marriage. The other women assure her that it will never happen. All the women, except for Alice, hide when Falstaff is heard approaching. As she sits in her chair playing the lute, Falstaff begins recounting his past to her, attempting to win over Alice's heart. Then Dame quickly suddenly announces Meg's arrival and Falstaff jumps behind a screen to hide. Meg has learned that Mr. Ford is on his way over and that he is very mad. The women then hide Falstaff inside a laundry basket full of dirty laundry. Mr. Ford enters the house with Fenton, Bardolfo, and Pistola. As the men search the house, Fenton and Nanetta sneak behind the screen. Mr. Ford hears kissing behind the screen. Thinking it's Falstaff with his wife, he discovers that it is his daughter and Fenton. He throws Fenton out of the house and continues to search for Falstaff. 
The women, worried that Ford will find Falstaff, especially when Falstaff starts audibly complaining of the heat, throw the basket out of the window and Falstaff falls into the Thames. The whole ensemble breaks out in laughter. This brings us to the second directing challenge in the story of Falstaff, and that is how to handle the scene with the laundry basket. Um, The laundry basket has to be pretty sizable, and depending upon the production that you're doing, you'll either have the audience see him get into the basket, and then the lifting of the basket and the dumping of the basket, or he will get into the basket and the basket will be taken off stage and then we will hear an audible splash. Now we're going to return to the Decca recording from 1963 with Durant Evans as Sir John Falstaff, Robert Merrill as Ford, Alfredo Krauss as Fenton, John Lanigan as Dr. Caius, Piero de Palma as Bardolfo, Giovanni Foyani as Pistola, Mistress Ford is Ilva Ligabue. Nanetta is Mirella Freni. Mistress Quickly is Giulietta Simeonato. And Mistress Megpage is Rosalind Elias. This is conducted by Sir George Schulte. <laughs> We find Falstaff licking his wounds and sulking in his misfortunes. He is about to go into the inn to drown his sorrows with wine and beer. Dame quickly arrives and tells him that Alice still loves him and would like to arrange another meeting at midnight. She shows him a note from Alice to prove she is telling the truth. Falstaff's face lights up once again. Dame quickly tells him that the meeting will take place in Windsor Park that evening. Even though it is often said that the park becomes haunted at midnight and that Alice has requested him to dress as the Black Hunter. Fenton and the other women plan to dress up as spirits later that night to frighten Falstaff senselessly. Mr. Ford promises to wed Dr. Caius and Nanetta that night and is told 
how he can recognize her in the costume. Dame quickly overhears their plan. Later that night, in the moonlit park, Fenton sings of his love for Nanetha, and she joins him. The women give Fenton a monk costume and tell him that it will spoil Mr. Ford's and Dr. Caius's plan because he will not be recognized. They quickly hide when Falstaff enters wearing his antlered black hunter costume. He proceeds to address Alice when Meg runs in shouting that demons are moving quickly and are about to enter the park. Nanetta, dressed as the fairy queen, orders the spirits to torment Falstaff. This is that exquisite scene with Nanetta as the queen of the fairies calling upon the spirits and the fairies to come forth. This is Mirella Freni as Nanetta with the Italiana Opera Chorus conducted by Sir George Schulte the Decca recording from 1963.
The spirits surround Falstaff, and he begs for mercy. Moments later, he recognizes one of his tormentors as Bardolfo. When the joke is over, he tells them it was all well-deserved. Mr. Ford then announces that he will end the day with a wedding. A second couple also asks to be married. Mr. Ford calls upon Dr. Caius and the Fairy Queen and the second couple. He marries both couples before realizing that Bardolfo has changed into the Fairy Queen costume and the second couple was Fenton and Nanetta. Happy with the outcome of the events and knowing that he was not the only one tricked, Falstaff proclaims, the world is nothing more than a jest and everyone shares a good hearty laugh. As you can see, this final scene has a lot of demands for the stage director, but it also has some really wonderful moments. Um, there's a lot of activity that happens. Um, the scene with the, the fairy queen and the spirits is not only beautiful musically and vocally, but it can be created in such a magical way with um, leaves falling and 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 sparkly fairy dust and there's just so many magical things that you can do with it and then all of the costuming um, is so wonderful because there's actually a huge chorus of people from the town of Windsor that gather in the park that night and so it makes it even worse for Falstaff because he's not only being being teased by and ridiculed by um, uh, Alice Ford and Meg Page and Mr. Ford and, and Bardolfo and Pistoli, but also by the, the townspeople. But it all ends up and wraps up in him laughing at himself. So the opera ends with a musical selection that sounds like it could be extracted from a Bach motet. You know, with, with Falstaff starting and then the other voices adding in. And it's really a wonderful way to end it because, because a fugue starts as a single thought and then other parts add in, repeating that original thought. So um, I think it really does encapsulate the whole entire essence of, this, of the opera, Falstaff and the story of Falstaff. And again, it's the production of 2013 from the Metropolitan Opera. Tutto nel mondo e burla. Thank <laughs> you.
Kobe said in his book of opera, it would take most of a book to describe Falstaff in sufficient detail to do anything like justice to the kaleidoscopic variety of the score. There is a sparkle, a rapidity of utterance, a speed of movement, an economy of means in the ensemble writing that has no equal in music written since Mozart, and every bar is endowed with a refinement of expression and a restraint that it would be difficult to imagine in the composer of the operas written before Macbeth. The music is even more fluid than in Othello, and the rhythmic ideas are caught up, dropped, and used again with a dexterity which Shakespeare himself, his, himself never excelled in his own medium. It is all as light as air, and yet out of it has been fashioned Shakespeare's Falstaff, drawn appropriately in the round, speaking Italian, but more English at heart than in any English musical recreation of him. That was voice teacher, stage director, and educator Doreen Hutchings discussing Giuseppe Verdi's classic comedy Falstaff. The opera returns to the Met stage on March 12th, featuring baritone Michael Foley in the title role and soprano Eileen Perez. The production will also be seen worldwide, live in HD, on April 1st, 2023. For more information, visit metopera.org. Make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera on your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date with all things opera. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.